Friedman. On today's show, we have Dr. Amy Sosa, where we're going to be discussing eating disorders and their relationship to developmental trauma. You're calling from and what type of work you're doing these days. Sure. So my name is Dr. Amy Sosa. I'm calling from Miami, Florida. I received my doctorate at Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago, Illinois, and then I relocated to Miami, Florida uh, for my postdoc at Florida International University. Um, so currently now I work at... Sure. So I love this question, and someone who really inspires me is Nelson Mandela. So um, and it's so hard to split through the best quote from him because he just says so many amazing things. And um, so I'll just pick a quote that really applies to my work and my life. Um, so he said that, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Um, so I really appreciate this quote for several reasons. Um, first of all, for therapy, for me, the essence of therapy is stepping into your fear in a safe and supportive way. And I really appreciate with Nelson Mandela, another major component of my work is really focusing on resiliency and also um, looking at who are resilient role models in our lives. And so for me, Nelson Mandela embodies what it means to be resilient in terms of him uh, being in prison for almost 30 years of his life wrongfully um, due to apartheid and just him overcoming and leaving prison and becoming the president of South Africa afterwards. And so he is just someone who has had um, incredible adversity and has really triumphed over the adversity and has really uh, grown to be, or grown to find strength within it all. So he really inspires me. Okay. Thanks. That's, yeah. He's a great, uh, great, um, yeah, great role model. Absolutely. What, you, what, um, yeah, so I noticed on your in your background that you did uh, your dissertation related to uh, something related to PTSD. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yep. So I did my dissertation on uh, essentially primary and secondary traumatic stress within Rwandi's healthcare providers. So um, if we back up what really started that, so between my undergraduate and graduate career I wanted to, or between undergraduate and, gra and graduate school, uh, I wanted to travel and didn't have money. So I was like, okay, I'll look into au pair positions. And so I found an au pair position in Swaziland, Southern Africa, which uh, is one of the most impoverished countries, has the highest rates of HIV, AIDS. And so I really opened my eyes uh, to complex trauma and also uh, international psychology. So then that really shaped my graduate career in terms of my research and my interest and um so I developed my dissertation to work with uh, Rwandan healthcare providers. I actually did a service learning project in Rwanda where I traveled to Rwanda with my professor, learned about uh, their treatment in terms of mental health, and um, really worked collaboratively on, on learning from mental health from their perspective as well as providing some tools from our perspective. And what really struck me was that, especially in a country like Rwanda where everyone, it's collective trauma, that everyone was impacted by the genocide in some ways, and so I spoke to several healthcare providers who were genocide survivors who worked with survivors daily. And so the survivor stories closely matched the stories of the healthcare providers. And so I would go home and really reflect on this and say, how is this so? And, and in terms of, of um, transference, counter-transference, in terms of how one's own story can bring up uh, the traumas of, of healthcare providers, I was really interested in terms of how they were able to sit 
all day and work um, in such close capacity to stories that, that resemble their own. And so um, I really looked at the literature on secondary trauma, so trauma from working with others and the interplay between one's own trauma as well as the trauma of working with, with others. So that's kind of where that my dissertation work uh, evolved. And then I noticed that within secondary trauma, uh, there weren't many treatment approaches, empirically validated treatment models uh, to treat secondary trauma. So I developed a model that looked at primary trauma and secondary trauma and then measured the effectiveness over time for Rwanda's healthcare providers. That's really cool. Have you ever heard of it? There's a study about from the World Health Organization uh, measuring uh, outcomes primarily with schizophrenia in uh, developed versus uh, developing countries. No, I haven't. I'd be really interested to hear more about it. Well, I, mean, I can share more about, about it with you. But the, the, ma- the major finding really was it was done in the 1970s, and, uh, or the la- I think in the late 1970s, and it showed that they actually had better, better outcomes with uh, schizophrenia in um, developing countries versus developed countries. And I was wondering, any insights that maybe from your perspective and being in Rwanda, how, how you could um, – how you could explain that kind of a thing. Huh, that's interesting. So I'd have to know a little bit more about the research. I think one thing that uh, really stood out to me in terms of my work internationally that I really integrate with my work now is the like the spirituality piece and the cultural piece. So right. embedded, and specifically with trauma, so embedded in any trauma story is a cultural story. And so many cultures um, in, in various capacities engage in, in rituals or practices that really look at one's um, either trauma, mental illness, but in your case, the question you asked was about schizophrenia. And so they can pray together. They can engage in different rituals. They can go to traditional healers that, that right. there are various systems in place where the, the person might feel more supported in some ways. Um, so, and then it's also very stigmatizing. So I think that that theory is not always, you know, doesn't apply to, to everything. Cause I've, you know, I've seen the opposite where people are outcasted, uh, because of mental illness. But I just wonder if within a culture, there are just more embedded, uh, community healing capacities. Well, yeah, that was a big part of it. The way I understood it is well, basically, well, one thing that they showed they used, uh, uh, the people with the schizophrenia and, um, psychosis they weren't medicated as heavily as they are here that, that's one thing and the other thing was is uh that they're yeah they're more included as in, in, as a part of um, the collective uh society they're not ostracized right right those are the two uh two of the major uh things that, that were uh that related to it, but uh, I just was wondering yeah, your perspective being in Rwanda, how you could, uh, yeah, how you would yeah. explain something like that. Yeah, that makes sense too, because in terms of, and what I like about the trauma literature where it's going is really looking at the resilience and protective factors and how social right. support in a community is such a protective factor, so um, that does definitely make sense. And then in terms of the medication, there are probably more holistic methods that they may use in various places, but um you know, are very different than the medical model. Right, absolutely. And and, yeah. and also, like you mentioned before, too, is that they, they have other, they're more accepting of other ways of explaining mental illness rather than just saying it's a, a brain disease or biochemical imbalance and that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, very true. Okay, so I, I was, an area of a thing that I don't really know that much about really how, um, 
the, the relationship between uh, the way in your work related to trauma and the eating disorders, how you see sure. that Yep, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so one thing in, in terms of with the trauma presentation, so according to the DSM, you have, like, the intrusive symptoms, and so the emotional flooding, a lot of different me- memories, the constriction, which is opposite, and they actually work hand-in-hand, hand. so it's either one is uh, flooded with memories, and then to respond to the flooding, then they respond through constriction, which is the complete opposite, so really pushing down, avoiding, trying to forget, and so to me, it's this interplay between the two that really uh, influence the development or potentially can influence the development of eating disorders as a way to cope. And mm-hmm. so, um, especially with, especially with the constriction, so like the emotional numbing that when, when one feels incredibly overwhelmed by, uh, an incredibly dis- emotionally dysregulated in some ways. And so they have these intense emotions, don't know how to handle them, especially with trauma and sexual assault. And so when, a trauma occurs on the body. And so the memories, which we could talk a little bit more about too, are stored in the body. And so those memories then turn into body image distress or body shame in some way, because a person can't, doesn't have the language uh, to understand or the comprehension to really understand what's going on. And especially when such acts are incomprehensible. And so then they'll, they'll turn that towards their body, that there's something wrong with my body. And if I only fix my body, so then they engage in, you know, typical eating disorder behavior such as the restriction, so which which helps with the emotional numbing or binging and purging, which is really a reflection of of the binging is like the emotional uh, overloading, and then the purging is a, a form of numbing in order to to release it. And so, it's all these maladaptive strategies to cope with with some of what's going on in the body. Yeah, that's interesting. As I, I've heard in the, in the different. Um, I just thought about it when you were talking about it that way, that, that, uh, like, there's a sort of, uh, metaphor in other cultures, how people sort of, uh, do rituals to sort of purge their trauma and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And even as you said before, I think in terms of, of rituals that, um, it, it just reminded me of your previous question with, with schizophrenia and, you know, some, some cultures pray to their ancestors or feel like they put a spell on someone. And so there are different rituals to kind of help expel some of these. And I think in this, you know, it, this is a, a gross generalization in terms of in the United States, um, where a lot of it is very independent. So it's like, you know, it's the person's problem. And so they look at it uniquely as this is one individual when also in trauma, trauma inherently is an assault on a relationship, so especially with physical trauma or sexual trauma. And so really in terms of healing from trauma is restoring those relationships. And so you need others to kind of help. You need that network to, to build um, to build safety in order to, to heal from that. Oh, absolutely. And that's a uh, problem. Uh oh, you're breaking uh, with the most. Uh, Oops, sorry, I didn't hear what you said. I was saying that, that um, I mean, we're moving away from this, but but still the traditional approach with the, the people that are in the most uh, mental distress to lock them up and put them away from connection. Yes, for sure. And then the and then the reinforcing that there's something wrong with me, so that I'm sick, there's something wrong with me. And so that's what I like with the trauma literature in terms of the protective factors and resiliency is that that to really understand, and especially with eating disorders as well as trauma, that both eating disorders and trauma are a way to cope 
with extremely <laughs> difficult situations. And so once a person sees that, okay, instead of I'm crazy and why, why is this happening to me and why did I choose this, this way of responding, it's to understand like, wow, my body was really adaptive, that it really protected me in terms of like, the rest- if we look at eating disorders in terms of restricting binging, purging, or binging, mm-hmm. that this, this is really a way to cope. And when I could understand that, I could almost give gratitude to my eating disorder in some ways for helping me survive when, when I didn't have other ways of surviving, when my, my resources were limited. And so yeah. now that I'm, I'm broadening my resources, now I have different ways to survive, and I don't need this in the same way anymore. And related to eating disorders in particular, uh, in the, 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 the original adverse childhood experience study that they uh, it was developed in, uh, in an obesity clinic, and they, they realized that the people that were responding to the obesity treatment all had uh, sexual abuse in their background. Mhm. Right. I think so. I looked at some of the research too, and um, obviously, there's there's so much research out there, and so they do show. And there was another research study that showed a major correlation between sexual abuse and bulimia. So then that makes sense that there would also be a correlation between abuse and and either binge eating or or being overweight in some way. Because again, if you think about traumas and assaults on the body, a way you're going to try to manage the body is through a basic form of nurturance, which is food. And so if you're feeling unsafe and, and food is a basic need, then then that's really going to, um, you know, play out in terms of how you take care of yourself. And the, the other thing that, that this uh, psychiatrist friend of mine brought up that I thought was interesting, that, uh, that actually with uh, eating is one of the ways, and digestion is one of the ways you uh, – your body naturally engages your um, parasympathetic nervous system. Right. So that, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, I just never thought about it that way. But it's, I mean, the parasympath, the, you know, when you're, if you experience trauma, that the sympathetic system is overly active generally, or, or that emotional numbing, like you said, it's not. That's off, but the, the, the parasympathetic one is the one that really sort of, uh, I feel resets and really gives you that more, yeah, resets you and gives you, makes you, calms you down more so. And, uh, right. there's really, the other interesting thing about that, there's no real, there's no pharmaceutical, um, uh, medication that really engages your parasympathetic response is something that I always thought about. Right. That makes sense. And I, I agree in terms of the, Sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, as you said, the sympathetic nervous system or like the fight-flight response is overactivated. And so even thinking about eating disorders, so if one isn't really focusing on the food or the way their body looks, yet they're anxious all the time when they eat, then that's going to cause nausea, which is going to cause a negative association with food over time, which might then cause you to avoid food. And so it's really coming from this anxiety response, but then it does it does play out in the food. Um, which is why when we get to treatment, that's where meditation or really any sort of forms of, of activating the parasympathetic nervous system to establish safety in your body sure. can really come into play. Um, yeah, uh, any, any particular resources that you recommend for um, related that you really like, books related to uh, working with trauma? Absolutely. So I, I love that question because there are so many, so I tried to narrow it down. Um, I know I spoke before about The Body Keeps the Score. So the yeah, it's one of my favorite ones. Score, yeah, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Vander Kolk. So I, I love it because he really does look at the brain, the mind, the body, discusses the neuropsychology and body-based 
experiences of trauma and really, really uh, provides the information in a comprehensible way and, and really looks at various treatment approaches that are a little bit different than your traditional treatment approaches. So he looks at yoga, um, really looks at some of the more body-based forms of healing, which I really like. So that, that book is definitely up there. Yeah, well, related to that, I was wondering if you've ever incorporated uh, any of it in your work, the uh, the heart rate variability stuff with, with yoga. Yes, so I haven't. So I, I'll, I'll like, basically recommend or encourage individuals. And we could talk a little bit more about movement, that yoga would be one of them. I've also done belly dancing for body image distress and body image uh-huh. shame. And even with sexual assault survivors, because if you think about belly dancing is all about um, – it was created by women for women, and it's a dance to sort of, like, embrace sexuality and sensuality, and it's very stored in the hips when a lot of trauma, especially rape, right, it would happen there. And so looking at how to reestablish a healthy relationship with your body, and especially various body parts that um, might evoke certain memories, and so um, that's something that I, I, I'll, I'll incorporate movement in some way or, or encourage people to do movement in some ways, but I haven't worked with heart rate variability. Yeah, no, it's just something that I found interesting that it's, uh, that he, he was talking about in the book that they incorporated their yoga uh, yoga classes with heart rate variability. Right, that's interesting. Um, other books that I really like, Healing Invisible Wounds by Richard Malika. So what I like about his book, so he's a researcher out of Harvard, and he actually opened up, this is what I want to say, in the 70s, late 70s, uh, a refugee center for the Cambodian refugees after the genocide. And he talks about basically with trauma work that a major fault in trauma work is just looking at the trauma of, oh, my gosh, what happened? And he talks about really healing from traumas, integrating who the person was before the trauma, during and after, and also grieving parts lost through the trauma, so like parts of innocence or that everyone is safe. And so when you look at one's trauma story, it's really the integration of, of all of those that are important instead of just focusing on the trauma. So, so you're a uh, crossfitter, right? Yes, yes. And that's something I, I've, I've been uh, curious about related to this sort of I, – I, mean, I think people um, – I mean, I'm not saying most people get into it in that way, but I think that, like, that there's such a people that are um, it's so popular, CrossFit and other sort of forms of intense sort of extreme exercise, and it really, really ignites your uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system, and um, and the um, that people are using exercise in a way to sort of manage their their trauma and maybe not really being aware of it or the relationship between exercise and uh, yeah, people with eating disorders, how they use exercise. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of those things. Sure, I'd love to. What a great question. So I looked at some of the research, too, so I'll, I'll start broadly by looking at some of the research and then talk about just my own experiences as a CrossFit coach. Um, okay. But really, so this was research done by Rosen, Rosenbaum and colleagues, looked at uh, basically traditional forms of trauma treatment, so uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So one group had that and one group had exercise in conjunction with trauma-focused CBT and found that the exercise group, actually their their symptoms improved significantly as opposed to the traditional treatment group. So they improved on sleep, the decreased symptomatology, decreased depression um, associated with the trauma. And so really looking at what that's about. What I like in in terms of my own work, and so 
um, when you speak of CrossFit, obviously it is very intense in the sympathetic nervous system. But when I was a CrossFit coach, I really looked at the kinesthetic awareness. And so, again, right. if you think about how all trauma is pre-verbal and all trauma is stored in the body and there are no words, that what what I like, and, I, you know, there are obviously, as, as with every modality, there are extremes. And so I'm, right. I'm thinking more of like a holistic, really awareness to your body. Um, when I coach, it was all about like noticing where your feet were, where are your knees, where are your hips, aligning everything, really sure. embracing your body, stepping outside your comfort zone, yet not pushing it too far. And so it's sort of the straddle between how much can I handle and how much can I push myself and what is my body doing in relation to this? And then really, really honing in on how is my body responding and adjusting accordingly. So in, in my work, whether it's, you know, something like yoga, which obviously is very much about inducing the relaxation or um, parasympathetic nervous system as opposed to CrossFit, which is very high intense. Both are still the kinesthetic awareness, which I think is the key to healing from trauma because you're understanding your body at times with physical or sexual abuse where you had to be disconnected from your body in order to survive. And so there's something very empowering about reconnecting to it in a different way. Yeah, that's a great um, point, and I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't remember the, the – I don't – can't think of the exact uh, um, 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 portion of it, but you know, like as you, I'm sure, know, a large part of your brain is really devoted towards motor control and movement. And, uh, yeah. But I definitely think, uh, I mean, that is a great thing about CrossFit, really encouraging people to understand how their body moves and and in space that kinesthetic awareness rather than just like you know the, the the traditional isolation type of exercises that people were doing previously right for sure and i could speak to two things on that and so in terms of like the brain stem or the cerebellum in terms of, of movement or um the medulla which controls heart rate and so if you think about trauma trauma responses in the brain are in the midbrain and brain stem and so some of this exercises in the same way and so my sense, and I actually want to read a little bit more about this, it's to me in terms of being a trauma survivor and, and doing intense exercise in some ways, it can separate hyperarousal from states of fear. And so mm -hmm. my body can can get to this this place of, of um, increased heart rate without going into a fear response. Right. And and to me, I, I, I think that that can be really empowering and even decreasing body shame. And so whether whether it be yoga, whether it be CrossFit, whether it be any source of movement, again, as long as you're connected to your body. So someone disconnected is like reading a magazine or any movement to where you're not you're not engaged in the actual movement piece of it, um, but where you actually connect your mind to your body, to your spirit. Um, it really helps decrease body strain, and it helps one hone in on their own internal strengths, which I think is really empowering. I mean, the other thing I, I've recently become interested in related to this is, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, it's a neuropeptide called BDNF, that, that it's, uh, they talk about it as implicated in people recovering from depression and, and promoting resilience and, uh, yeah, cardio, cardio exercise and strength training has been shown to enhance that. And the other thing that someone told me that actually enhances it even more so than exercise is fasting. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. No, I'm not familiar with that. But it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, go, uh, ahead. go ahead. I was done. 
the difficult thing is with eating disorders because I think that's where it gets so complicated because someone with an eating disorder um, who has a really negative uh, relationship with exercise, so it's really compulsory. It's I have right. to go, I should go, I have guilt if I don't go. And so yeah. all of this, obviously, you're so disconnected from your body. And even in terms of fasting, so someone might look at like, okay, this, someone with an eating disorder might say, okay, fasting helps me, so it so it enables my disorder in some way and so this is where I think yoga could be really powerful as a form of of starting because in in yoga it's it's a slow very intentional static movements in some way where um, one has to has to connect to their body or if they don't then they realize they're not connected and you don't want to leave the room and process it over time and so you know I, I think starting slow and then incorporating from there is also really helpful. Yeah, related to the eating disorders, do they have, I'm sure they do, do the, the people from the eating disorders do any, like, 12-step kind of support groups, or are they into that at all? To do support groups outside, like, community support groups? For no, well, I was just thinking and related, because I feel they're sort of, they're connected in some of the ways, like the addiction or the eating disorder, but, but, uh, but, uh, you know, whereas addiction, I mean, never, you can never have abstinence to the goal with so with eating with an eating disorder, right? I was thinking about and um, um, right. No, I guess of, yeah. Oh, I think you're asking like in terms of the self help groups like AA and if there's something for the eating disorder yeah. community. Yeah. Okay. There's some. I actually I don't know the names. I know there was something for binge eating. Um, there's a self help group. It just seems it it takes a long time to recover, and so it's looking at the the um, progressive treatment, so going from residential to partial hospitalization to intensive outpatient program and then right. outpatient program. And my hope is that to build a community, so similar but different than I think um, in terms of other addictions where you have to, like, really build a community in terms of sobriety. It's also with eating disorders is building that resilient community or that community with protective factors that has a healthy relationship with food has a healthy yeah. relationship with movement, which is actually pretty countercultural. What is? I think it's having a healthy relationship with food or movement that a, a lot of, um, even in terms of for myself going out with my peers who are not in the mental health field, it's like, you know, no carbs or restricting in some way. Yeah. And so that that can be seen as disordered. And so it's someone who, especially early in recovery from an eating disorder, um, that that's a slippery slope in terms of who you surround yourself with. Um, right. and what their relationship is, is like. Because food is a form of connection, and so, of course, you're going to go out to eat uh, a lot with people and really making sure that, um, you know, you're you're solid enough in your recovery to respond appropriately when a, when a triggering comment comes up and also having, again, those, you know, the the people in your uh, court who, who have the same food philosophy as you and movement philosophy. No, that's what I was saying. It's just so challenging with something I imagine with an eating disorder because uh, sobriety or abstinence can never be the – you can't have abstinence or you would, right. you would die. So it's, uh, right, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, and it takes a long time. Similar to addiction in terms of recovery, it takes a long time. But, yeah, you have the added piece of you have to eat. And not only do you have to eat, but it's very social. And so, um, looking at how triggering an environment could be. And uh, any, um, you see any uh, interesting developments you see with the whole uh, trauma movement and, and research? Anything that you're aware of that uh, 
you see is exciting? Yeah, I spoke a little bit about this before. So um, what I really like is instead of trauma going to the deficit-based response, uh, where trauma is, again, an assault on the self. And so a lot of the trauma responses are a way to adapt to that. And so in the medical model, a lot of people see that or a lot of professionals can see that as a deficit. However, it's really a way to survive. And so where I, I appreciate that it's the trauma literature is going is looking at those resiliency and protective factors. And so I like that they're shifting from more of the deficit symptom-based model to more of like, okay, what makes one person resilient? I actually went to a keynote talk uh, during the, inter- the annual conference for the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. So the website is ISTSS.org. It's a great resource for trauma. Um, and this keynote speaker, um, Dr. Dennis Charney was the keynote speaker, and he looked at prisoners of war and what makes them, and they were in long-term isolation, and so what makes them resilient. And he looked at uh, the different ways they formed communication with one another. So they basically, basically used something like Morse code, so they would tap with one another and how it would take, you know, hours to communicate one thing, but then that that helps them maintain social connections to others. Um, he looked at adaptive coping strategies. So instead of passive coping strategies, that people really utilize the adaptive coping strategies uh, to respond. And so I really appreciate that the literature is going more towards the strength-based approach because I think that more aligns with the trauma experience. And then the whole uh, the term post-traumatic growth has been a real hot topic that I think should yes. be addressed. Yes, which I love. And in terms of treatment, I think, after one uh, really works through the fear-based response and establishes safety in their body, and not only safety in their body, but safety with others and the relationship that I, I like to kind of segue to the talk to, like, how have you grown from this? Like, what what is different? And in a lot of ways, their spirituality or, you know, their even sense in humanity or even seeing the good in others, that there's so many so many lessons that uh, they learned throughout the process that they said, like, I'm a different person and, and it's not for the worse. Like, I'm really, I've really grown from this and this is how. And so when someone is grounded and, and can really get to that point, that um, that's incredible to, to witness and work with. And any particular modalities that you like to, uh, you work with regarding um, helping people with the symptoms of trauma? Mm-hmm. I really like that question, and of course, I'm going to speak again about Vanderkolk's book, yeah. um, "The Body Keeps the Store." Because what I like about his book is that he integrates several modalities, and so obviously, some something that a lot of trauma clinicians use is the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which I find helpful in terms of the psychoeducation. So when someone is experiencing the emotional flooding or intrusive memories or the numbing, like I can't feel anything, that I'm just empty and I'm navigating this world, that to provide them in a context of why they're experiencing what they're experiencing is really important. The neuropsychology too behind. So what I often say is like, we have to retrain the brain that I'll talk a little bit about uh, the neurobiology and of the trauma response and just say like, you know, over time, this is what you're going to do is, is, is retrain your brain to establish safety in the here and now. So I'll use some of those, um, you know, more traditional approaches. And then what I like about, Vander Kolk's book is that he goes into the non-traditional approaches and so looking at yoga looking at movement really looking at uh again um yeah I was thinking about one um uh oh well yeah related to one of the things that you brought up which I think is uh is challenging how do you uh how do you deal with uh the emotional numbing in particular 
Yeah, that's a good point. So um, what I like, again, is that trauma is preverbal, and so there's no way to put language on it. And so sometimes I'll ask people, even drawing, like, a gingerbread person and um, maybe even, like, coloring what it looks like in your body or attaching a sound. For some reason, that sound is um, – is, can be highly associated with trauma memories. And so if you can attach a sound to what's going on in your body, does it move or does it stay still? What is it doing now? And really having people kind of describe or get in touch with what's going on in their body, um, either through art, through attaching a sound, you know, if they want to. related to art, uh, one of you uses it all. It's sort of been exploding the whole uh, adult coloring book uh, thing. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. The adult coloring book, though, gives me anxiety because the lines are so small. And so I think it's in a lot of ways that's that's the topic of another conversation, but I think it perpetuates the perfectionism. Like, I want the kid coloring book where you can color out of the lines and, you know, tap into that silly, playful side right. instead of being so contained. Um, but, yes, I use coloring with adults a lot. So one one main thing is, which a lot of clinicians use, is, like, drawing the body and where emotions live in your body. One thing that I found really powerful is using wax paper because it's transparent. And so I'll, and I'll have them draw fear in their body, draw shame in their body, draw these different, uh, on separate wax papers and then have them stack it in terms of how they navigate the world. And often the most difficult emotion is buried underneath. And so we can use the wax paper. So I'll bring the bottom emotion and put it on top and say, what would it be like to navigate the world this way? Um, I had one um, one patient who had uh, some severe sexual assault, and I had her draw safety in her body, and she couldn't. She drew – her body was floating, and she drew a line underneath, but her body wasn't grounded to the line, and she said, there is no safety in my body. And then over time, we worked, we worked on establishing safety in her body, and then she was able to – we revisited the activity, or I just – I prompted her – uh, another directive to to depict safety in her body, and she was actually able to depict safety in her body. So I think things like that where it's nonverbal, but really looking at the visualization of it can really help because that really connects uh, to your body. There's another activity, and uh, my goodness, I'm forgetting the author of this workbook. It's a trauma workbook, but it's called Layered Feelings, and it's the same concept with the wax paper where a feeling you feel often, a feeling you like, a feeling that's difficult for you, a feeling that happened after the trauma. And so they get to attach whatever feelings they want or or depict whatever feelings they want to it and then layer it in some way. And then you discuss how you layered it um, and really looking at different ways to kind of layer it and navigate the world. So I do, I incorporate art a lot with adults, and I think it helps to, to really connect to the inner child, especially if assaults happen um, early on or somewhere in childhood. Yeah, it seems to be really good, helpful for anxiety, too, in particular. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, related, I think it's in Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score book. I was wondering if you've, uh, if you've ever done anything with the, or familiar with the trauma releasing exercises. No, I don't know. Can you say more about it? Yeah, it's a it's a modality. Uh, I forget the, uh, the the guy who created it, but it's uh, sort of a series of uh, gentle kind of exercises designed to sort of in, in, invoke that um, kind of neuro, neurogenic tremors to have people sort of release the trauma from their bodies. Oh, no, I've never done that. I know um, this is similar to. Oh my gosh, I'm blinking because this isn't my area of expertise, but almost it's like Reiki or things like that. We're just like releasing, like if trauma points are 
stored in the body that weighs to kind of release those points. Well, I mean, kind of, but this is a little bit more, no. a little bit more, uh, like a little more scientifically based, like a right kind right. of spiritual. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's a bunch of different exercises that they, they have sequences, and the idea is to, uh, it's sort of based on the, the, the concept that, uh, if you look at animals, that generally the day, uh, animals in the wild, that they'll, uh, release the, the, the trauma in their bodies by shaking and, and that sort of invokes this kind of tremor kind of thing that purges right. the trauma and it's trying to get that to happen uh invoke that type of response so. right no i haven't worked with that that's definitely not my area of expertise it sounds interesting i think yeah. it really goes with like the body-based responses or the other one the somatic experiencing have you ever familiar with that one i'm somewhat familiar so um my, I mean, the way I view trauma is, um, yeah, I, I haven't worked a lot with somatic, somatic experiencing, or I don't have, I don't know that much about it. Right. Um, yeah, but it, it's the same, it's a similar kind of a concept that it's trying to release, uh, yeah, to notice the trauma in the body and uh, have people have a greater awareness of the body and, and be able to, uh, to uh, create a shift in their experience of the trauma. Right, that makes sense. So I do that. I just used a different term, I think. Right, you don't. So. Uh, but I think he talked. It's talked about in the uh, the body keeps the score. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I think. I mean, especially with trauma, in terms of, you know, we're talking time and time again how body based it is, and so the body is essential and and healing from it. So that makes sense. Yeah, I forget if it was Bessel van der Kolk that said it, but somebody recently uh, said this thing that the that the issues are in the tissues, meaning that. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And he also said, I mean, this is something that he's said about how it's uh, something I forget exactly. It's something about how we're sort of a collective, we're sort of a tribal, we're we've originated as like tribal people, but we've sort of gotten away from that tribal um, sense. But anyway, sort of in uh, a cl- uh, con- conclusion here, what any uh, what particular advice would you give to new uh, therapists, psychologists that are working in the trauma space? I love that question. So my dissertation was the primary trauma and secondary trauma. Um, something that's really important to me is self care, and so um, Perlman and uh, Sakvite talk about in their book Transforming the Pain really talking about three facets to trauma. So being aware, or three facets to healing from secondary traumatic stress. And so really having awareness is is number one, and then really balancing personal and professional and connection to yourself, to others, and something greater than yourself. And so I think it's so important to practice self-care. One thing I often say, especially when people initially start working with trauma, is um, to do a ritual. So when you when you have, um, you know, a heavy trauma caseload and you come home for the day to do a transitional activity to help leave work at work and, and come home. And so actually one of the genocide survivors I worked with said, like, I would jump rope when I would get home. Another person said, like, I, you know, I would cook for my family. For me, it's walking my dog, that there are just different things you do. And if you make it a ritual or routine that you do every day, then it really helps transition work from home. Um, I think the other thing is, Oftentimes, as adults, we're very serious, and so what I like about 
their book in Transforming the Pain talks about as adults, we have to express our playful side, our sensual side, our um, our inner child. And so in some ways, like have a good laugh and be playful and do things that really nourish various parts of ourselves. Yeah, those are really great, uh, great uh, things to do for sure. Uh, well, one of the things I, I just thought of is um, yeah, boundaries. I think this is a touchy subject because I've, I've heard that the, you know, the traditional sense of people that are experienced trauma that you should fit, fit very, set very clear boundaries with them because often their, their experience of trauma, their boundaries were, were exploited. But how, uh, What's your uh, viewpoint on boundaries with uh, trauma survivors, working with trauma survivors? I really like that question. So this reminds me of another good book with Judith Herman um, in terms of basically her book, Trauma and Recovery. So, yes, you have to have boundaries. And the biggest thing, especially in childhood trauma, is in children in general, seek firm and consistent boundaries. You have to have firm, predictable, and consistent boundaries. And so the best thing you can do as as a therapist is have those those consistent and and predictable boundaries and that's really going to help someone feel safe with you and establish trust over time when when their trust has been destroyed in terms of trauma i i bring myself into therapy a lot and so you know you said uh, you mentioned something about other professionals or firm boundaries like i'll i'll disclose or sometimes i'll get tearful as as they're talking about some of their experiences you know i'll have tears in my eyes because a lot of ways it's a mirror of, of what they're feeling and it's also it's also witnessing something so intimate and so personal that has happened to them and, and having someone sit there and witness it alongside of you. So um, I also think it's important to be human in the relationship and to show that you're human, um, admit imperfections at times or admit mistakes at times, because I think that's all part of restoring relationships and restoring um, what it means to have a healthy and safe relationship. Yes, yeah, uh, but, but I've found that sometimes that uh, one of the things that, like, a lot of therapists, I feel they can be too rigid with people that have experienced trauma, and they just feel that the, I feel that the, the survivors of the trauma feel sort of abandoned and, and hurt and, and don't feel hurt enough. I, I see that. that right. Be a, uh, an issue yeah. Yep, I agree. And one thing about that, too, and this is something that, just various places I work, trauma survivors are not fragile. And I think if someone is really firm or really closed off, that there's a there's a fear of if I say something, I may trigger them or that they can't handle it or whatever it is. And this is what, where I really appreciate the resiliency that they, they've been through a tremendous amount of experiences and, and they have, they survived it. And so they, they can handle this. And so I actually think it's important to show your, your humanity in it and show uh, some of your personal side. I think that's, that's important in terms of healing. No, I think that's a great point. And I mean, that yeah. from my, my point was like, uh, vantage point being new in the field. When I, when I started working that, yeah, that you're afraid that if you would like, at least me, I, if I would ask somebody about suicide or things like that, that I would trigger them. But I, yeah, I definitely think it's a good point that they are resilient and they're not going to, they can, uh, they've been through a lot and can handle a lot. Yeah. And if you trigger them, what I say too, and this goes with eating disorders as well is, that it's okay to be triggered because then you get to work on it, that it's evoking something in you to work on. And so if you're asking about suicide and that triggers them, that can be a whole conversation about death and loss and even parts of themselves they feel they lost. Uh, so to me, I, I think that's all grist for the mill, and it's really important to discuss. All right. Well, any any uh, concluding thoughts that you have? 
No, I think this is it. I just really appreciate the time you took. Thank you so much for taking this time. Well, thank you, Amy. Thanks for joining me on this uh, talk. You really offered a lot of good uh, good. Information.